May we have your attention, please? Well, hello and welcome to the RSSB podcast. Today's podcast is a general overview of standards, what they are, why we need them, and the areas they cover. So I'm delighted to be welcoming Tom Lee, Director of Standards at RSSB, to the podcast. Many thanks for making the time for this podcast, Tom. As is traditional on this podcast, may I start by asking you who you are and how you came to be in your present position in rail? I'm Tom Lee. I'm Director of Standards with RSSB, accountable for our standards activities. I joined British Rail back in 1989 and I pursued an early career on frontline maintenance. Um, I'm a signal engineer by background and increasingly became involved in the early days of ERTMS. ERTMS is the European Rail Traffic Management System. It's a set of specifications to have a common approach to signalling train protection and communications across Europe. Initially on the West Coast Joint Project Team with ambitious plans to install ETCS on the West Coast Main Line and had the opportunity of joining what was then Railway Safety, the immediate forerunner of RSSB as a signalling specialist back in 2002. I've had a variety of roles within RSSB, a strong involvement in ERTMS and digital technology and systems over that period of time, ultimately becoming a Director of Standards a few years ago. Okay, so very briefly, as an introduction to today's topic, can you say what standards are? Standards are essentially a common way of doing something. So they set a specification or a process that enables people, things, equipment to do things in a common and consistent way. Why would you do things in a common, consistent way? Well, usually because it makes economic sense. It's cheaper to do things in the same way. And doing things differently often, therefore, costs money because you don't get the economies of scale, or it potentially increases the risk of doing something differently to everybody else. The other advantage, of course, with standards is that they are a means of pooling knowledge and experience. So someone who's using a standard benefits from the the knowledge and experience of all those who've gone before and have contributed to that standard. It avoids having to reinvent the wheel. And in our context with the standards that RSSB produces, by nature of the way in which we produce them, not only are they a common way of doing something, but they are an industry-agreed way of doing something. So the GB rail industry comes together and actually says, yes, this is what we want to do. And we all agree that this is the right thing and the most appropriate thing to do. So essentially a common agreed way of doing something. Great. Thanks for that, Tom. That's very helpful. I'm wondering if you know when it was that the railway started using standards. Do you know when that was? Well, standards have been around for a long time, and the reasons for that are not dissimilar to those today, because it makes economic sense in doing something in a common way. You simply need that to make things work. The origins of standardisation on the railways really go back to a predecessor organisation of of RSSB, and that was the Railway Clearinghouse. So the Railway Clearinghouse was established in 1842, so we're going right back to the very early days of, of railways. And its initial purpose was about determining fare revenue where passengers were making journeys that potentially uh, went on to different railway systems. 
So in those days, all the railway companies were private. But of course, you may make a starter journey on uh, one railway and finish it on another because there were three working agreements. And there had to be a means of making sure that the money, the fare box income that the passengers paid, was then fairly attributed between organisations. So the railway clearinghouse was established. But they quickly recognised that there was a benefit, having got the railway clearinghouse, to having a common technical approach and common operational approach to running the railway. And the first thing that they looked at standardising, and it might seem slightly strange from today's perspective, was time. Because in those days, GMT wasn't widely adopted across the country. There were regional variations in time. So, for example, there's a few minutes difference between time in Bristol and London. And prior to the advent of the railways, it didn't really matter. But when you start to run a railway and you need timetables that span many cities, of course, then you need a common approach. So the first standards that were introduced were on time. The Royal Clean House went on to develop a wide range of standards on other things, probably uh, most notably freight wagons was a key area because there was an enormous amount of wagon load traffic in the early days of, of the railways. And even today, the name still lives on. So the railway clearinghouse was largely disbanded in about 1954 and ultimately wound into the British Railways Board in 1963. But the name still lives on. So the cables that are used for lighting between carriages, for example, the jumper cables are still known to this day as RCH, Railway Clearinghouse Jumper Cables. And you might be interested to know, one of the standards we're working on currently is about time. So... Back in the 1840s and 1850s, there was a need to standardise on GMT. We're now having to work to higher levels of precision. So the railway already has a variety of different time sources of different resolution used for different purposes. But with increasing digitisation and automation, there is a need to, again, define common standards for time across the railway. And it's a live project at the moment. There are lots of different acronyms for standards. And it seems like there are a baffling array of different types of standards. Can you explain some of them for me? Well, that's a very broad question, and we could have a podcast probably lasting for hours on that. But essentially, there's a hierarchy of, of standards. And there are international standards and European standards produced by international bodies like ISO and the IEC, and at the European level, SEN and SENELEC. Their standards, the SEN and SENELEC standards, are all numbered in the EN series. So often you'll hear people referring to EN standards. So they're very broadly applicable, either globally or at least at the European level. And Europe, in this sense, is broader than just the European Union. SEN and SENELEC membership extends much wider than the European Union and still includes the UK. I don't want to interrupt Tom Lee in full flow, but here's some abbreviations explained in full for those who might need them. ISO is the International Standards Organisation and IEC is the International Electrotechnical Commission. CEN is the European Committee for Standardisation and CENELEC is the European Electrotechnical Committee for Standardisation. And now, back to Tom Lee. At the national level, we have the RSSB standards, which apply to the GB mainline railway, which is essentially the old British rail network. 
They're probably amongst the most well-known standards we have, although the number has been declining over a few years. And that's because there's a very narrow definition of what meets the criteria for a railway group standard. I won't go into all of the detail here, but they support regulations in uh, setting legislation. We have rail industry standards, which are steadily growing in number and, and replacing many of the former railway group standards. They're RISs, and they cover a whole range of technical and operational matters. Supporting these, we have guidance notes. And then, of course, many organisations have their own standards as part of their quality management systems, and they may uh, apply across the whole of a company. So, for example, Network Rail has its suite of company standards that are applicable to uh, Network Rail's operations. And even then, individual projects will have their own standards for the things that are specific to that project. The basic principle of standardisation is if it makes sense to standardise something, it probably makes sense to standardise that on the widest possible basis that you can. And for that reason, we promote our standards at the network level for the GB mainline network. But increasingly, if it makes sense for us to standardise at that level, it probably makes sense to standardise the same thing at the European level because you get wider benefits, you get the wider economies of scale, you get the wider knowledge transfer and, and learning, and increasingly at the international level as well. So there are examples there, particularly things on vehicle construction, rail vehicle construction and design, where we are very influential at the European and international level, because it doesn't matter whether you're designing a train to operate in the the Far East, in Europe, or elsewhere in the world, there are some things that make sense to do in a common way in terms of structures vehicle integrity, glazing, and things like that. It doesn't make economic sense for you to do your own thing. So we are increasingly seeing that global standardisation. It's probably worth mentioning as well, uh, not strictly standards, but very closely related, we have NTSNs, National Technical Specification Notices. Now, some listeners may be familiar with TSIs, Technical Specifications for Interoperability, Uh, The NTSNs are the national successor to TSIs. So TSIs are part of European regulations that set out a common technical specification for the systems, equipment and operational processes across Europe's railways. And they're part of the interoperability directive. Well, we're not bound by that anymore um, since exercising the choice to leave the EU, but we still recognise there are significant benefits in adopting a similar approach. The TSIs have been incorporated within the UK legal framework, certainly applicable in Great Britain, now in the form of NTSNs, National Technical Specification Notices. The content of them is very similar to the TSIs and they serve in a very similar purpose. But for completeness, I should add that TSI still continue to apply in Northern Ireland because of the different legal framework there. So that's just a flavouring of some of the acronyms that we've got in the standards world and standards landscape. What I would say is people are at all confused on any of the acronyms and terms we use and need any help, drop us a line and we'll be happy to try and help. Often quick email to us can save hours or even days of abortive effort otherwise. So please do get in touch. Okay, so I can see the standards in rail are very comprehensive indeed. What areas do standards cover? Well, standards cover a variety of areas. We organise our standards um, 
align to committees that approve the content of those standards. And these are largely around defined disciplines. So uh, there are seven of those standards committees, and they are in alphabetical order. CCS, Control, Command and Signalling. So they deal with signalling and telecommunications uh, related standards. Data Systems and Telematics. They deal with standards that relate to information exchange uh, across the industry. Energy, which is effectively Eurospeak for electrification. So they deal with AC electrification, overhead electrification, that is, and DC third rail electrification and a few other things as well. Infrastructure, they deal with the fixed infrastructure on the network, principally the track, structures, bridges, tunnels, the civil engineering aspects, but also a lot of the infrastructure side of the specifications for persons of reduced mobility, PRM. So tactile paving, wayfinding, those types of things. We have plant. Plant deal with on-track plant. So those are the smaller yellow machines, the excavators, bulldozers and diggers and things like that that are rail-mounted. And on-track machines, which are the bigger yellow machines, tampers, regulators, those sorts of equipment, and a few other things beside. Rolling stock, essentially the trains, so locomotives, passenger uh, carriages, um, wagons, and all the uh, requirements associated with those. And finally, traffic operation and management. So the operating rules, so the requirements that are set for organisations, for example, on the uh, management of drugs and alcohol and qualifications competence, but also the detailed operating rules, which most people will recognise as the rule book. So that's one of the uh, standards documents we produce, and that's overseen by the traffic operations and management. What are the triggers for changing standards or developing a new one? Well, there can be a number of triggers, but a frequent trigger is uh, feedback from members uh, of RSSB and users of the standard. So sometimes this may apply to an existing standard or can apply where we've actually got no standard currently, and there is then a request for a standard on a new subject matter. Anybody can do that. Uh, So there's a form, you can get it on our website, which is a request for help form. It can be used for a variety of purposes, but essentially asks, well, who are you? What's your problem? And what does good look like? That gives us the basic information then that we can provide support. And some of those, not all of them, will result in a change to a standard. So we evaluate all of these that come in. Any that results in a change to standard, we deal with as a a proposal. And we will develop that then and do some initial scoping on that. So we'll define what the change, extent of the change is likely to be. We will take into consideration other things as well. So in our corporate memory, we may have some information and some issues that are parked awaiting a revision to a standard. So things that themselves wouldn't necessarily be significant enough to drive a standard a standards change. But those things that we've got on record that when we next change this standard, we must incorporate this. So we will develop an initial scope, often in conjunction with whoever has requested a change. That will give us an indication how much this is going to cost. It will enable us then to prioritise that work and we can build that into our business plan. As with any business, we haven't got infinite resources and infinite money. And inevitably, the demand upon us exceeds our ability to uh, supply. We can't possibly do everything. So we prioritise. 
And the vast majority of these things then get developed. And we manage each one, certainly if it's a substantial change, as a formal project, and it has a normal project life cycle. So here is a definition phase of the project. It will then go into uh, development. Now, as part of the development, a lot will depend on what the nature of the change is. In some cases, we'll be looking to effectively codify an existing practice or existing operational technology, and there will be a lot of relevant information that we can use to then inform what the standard should say. In some cases, it may be completely novel, and it may be a combination of both of those where we need to supplement it with further information. Well, our in-house experts can help develop that. We've got a team of highly knowledgeable people who contribute to our standards as part of my team and across RSSB. But very often we will call upon others across the industry and also commission research. So a key activity that RSSB does is R&D, and we work with a number of organisations across the industry and academia as well in developing new knowledge. And very often then that finds its way into standards. So we need to generate the knowledge. And then having got the knowledge, we need to write that in the form of a standard. We ultimately end up with a well-advanced draft of a standard. We engage with the standards committees through the process. Uh, We get to the point where actually we then seek a wider view on the content of the standard. We go through a formal consultation process. So we send the standard out and make it available in a draft form to anybody who wishes to comment on that. So if people listening to this want to be involved in that, if you go and search for consultations on our website, it should take you to our consultation page. And there you can sign up for future consultations and you'll get an automatic notification based on the preferences you set. But at any time, anybody can go in there and look at the ongoing consultations and comment on our standards that are currently out for consultation. We take all comments into consideration. The vast majority on those we will address positively. Sometimes we won't because of the nature of the comment. It may be something that's been misunderstood, in which case we may revise the text, but it might not be in line with with the comment, but at least it prevents the misunderstanding. In some cases, somebody may be expressing an alternative preference which is not supported by the industry, so we may reject those. But all are addressed and we provide responses to all of those. And ultimately, standards committees agree the content of the standards, and then they get published. Now, the agreement of all of this is by consensus. That's the common approach to pretty much all European and international standards, and it provides the best foundation for these standards and helps facilitate that agreement. But the whole process does take time, and particularly where we've got to do R&D as part of this, because it does take time to to generate new knowledge, new learning, and and consolidate that and capture it within the standards. So typically, our standards take between about nine and 18 months from start to finish to develop. A few of them do take a little bit longer, depending on their content. But that's essentially what the development process is for the standard. We support that with other information as well. The business decisions we need to take in terms of prioritising the standard are documented through the business case for change, which some listeners may be familiar with, uh, formerly known as the impact assessment. We've made that a lot more numerate and hence the change in in title in, in recent years. So we assess what the expected benefits of the standard would be. 
And we include the rationale for the changes to the standard. And if it's a change to an existing standard, we include a disposition table or tables in that so that people who were familiar with earlier versions of the standard can then easily understand what the changes are at a detailed level and what the drivers for those changes are. We also produce a briefing note for the standard, just a one-sider that gives that executive summary of what the standard's about and the nature of, of the change. And we support this within our wider ecosystem as well for communications, including other briefing material and our regular webinars. Okay, I've now had a bit of an introduction to standards. How do I find out more? Well, the, the simple answer to that is, is so often the case these days is on our website. So on our website, you'll find a whole variety of material there. Now, importantly, we've got the standards catalogue. And to access the standards in the catalogue, you will need to be registered on our website to download the individual standards. But there's no restrictions on registration. So anybody can have an account that allows them to download the standards. You can also access most of our other standards material on the website that I've been talking about, the briefing notes and the business cases for change, for example. But there are some things that we do restrict to member organisations only uh, as part of premium content. And for those, you will need to be a member of one of our member organisations to directly access that. But the standards themselves are widely available at no direct cost to the, the end user. Now, we appreciate feedback on all of this, and particularly the material we produce and the briefing material we produce. So if anyone's got any views on that, we'd like to hear. We're always looking to improve. And in fact, a number of the practices we've adopted over the last few years have been quite significantly influenced by the feedback we get from members and users of our material. So we are always interested to hear from people. Thank you very much, Tom Lee, for that brief but thorough introduction to standards and where people can go to find out more or ask for help. Remember, we're with you every step of the way. Mm-hmm.